If you would, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. And we'll begin reading with verse 1 of that chapter. Isaiah chapter 53. And beginning with verse 1. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Father, we come before you thanking you for your many blessings. We thank you that we can hold a copy of the word of God in our hands, read from it, study from it, and hear it preached. Father, I do thank you for this day and that you came out of the, up out of the grave, you arose, and Father, we can serve a living Savior. Father, I thank you for our church and our pastor, and Lord, I just pray that you will fill him with your power, with your spirit as he comes and preaches. I pray that you will give him clarity of thought, clarity of mind as he gives your word, and Father, may we see you and see your word and what you have for us, and Father, I pray that you will help us to grow closer to you because of what's said and done. But, Father, I do pray for each and every one that's listening. And, Father, I just pray that you'll touch them, meet their very needs, because we're needy people, and we need a touch from you. And, Father, I just pray that there's one that doesn't know you, that today will they come to know you as our personal Savior. And, Father, we thank you for your many blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. In Isaiah chapter 53, we find the gospel in the Old Testament. And there is a page of notes in your bulletin if you have that from this morning that you can fill, fill in. I think the ushers have some extra ones. If you don't have one, you need one. If you'll raise your hand, they'll get that to you. 
and uh, just hold it up high until they get there, and they'll help you with that. I want to talk about the real beauty of Jesus tonight. And in this passage here in Isaiah 53, we find the details of the coming ministry of the Messiah. For them, it was coming. For us, it's already passed. But Isaiah paints a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ that is unlike most of the modern artists that we find today. Oftentimes, when you see a picture of Jesus, you see a picture that shows him as an outstanding specimen. He's portrayed as having oftentimes exceptional handsomeness and as having features, sometimes even a halo is put in the picture that causes him to stand out among men. And yet here in this passage of Scripture in verse number 2, it tells us that he has no form nor comeliness. That means that there will be no splendor. There's nothing magnificent about the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah also says that there is no beauty about him that would cause men to flock to him, that would draw them to him. The word beauty here means appearance. Isaiah was simply stating to us that when Jesus walked upon this earth, he didn't stand out as far as his physical features. He didn't stand out among men. When someone saw Jesus here on earth, this earth, he just seemed like a normal, run-of-the-mill person. There's an old saying that we have heard oftentimes, you can't judge a book by its cover. And that certainly was true of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not what men saw, but it was what they could not see about the Lord Jesus that made him extraordinary. In fact, Paul touches on that very thought. If you'll hold your place in, in Isaiah, go back with me over to the New Testament, to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Familiar verses for many of us. And listen to what the Apostle Paul said there, beginning in verse number five of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 and verse 5, he said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The Bible says he being found in fashion as a man. He was what we would think of just an ordinary common man as he appeared here on this earth. He's pictured as one who concealed his heavenly, his heavenly fame in his earthly frame. They didn't see and people didn't recognize who he was as the Son of God, just by looking at Him. He was willing to come to this earth, and here on this earth, He was willing to live in poverty. Most of us, if we had a choice, we wouldn't choose poverty to live in, would we? We'd want to have some riches, we wanted to have things nice and the best, but Jesus willingly, in fact, the Bible says, He became poor so that we who are poor could become rich. And He chose to live among the poor. He was willing to surround himself with common men and women 
to surround himself with sinners. And so the real beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ was not seen just to look upon him. Think about this for a minute. He was born to a peasant to peasant parents. He, he, the poverty that he experienced was his constant companion. In fact, there were times when the Bible said that he didn't even have a place to lay his head at nighttime. His disciples were just common, ordinary fishermen for the most part. Common peasants were his most devoted followers. When he died, his death was among condemned, wretched criminals. His church, for the most part, was made up of normal, everyday people. Many might think that such a man like this was not worthy of our love and our devotion and our worship. For just to look at him in his human form was not something that was attractive beyond the normal person. It is in the things that Jesus accomplished for you and me, the work that he did, that we see his real beauty, don't we? So I want you to just kind of put aside from your mind all of the artist renditions that you've seen. Forget all the illusions that you may have that conjured up in your mind about what Jesus looked like. And tonight I want us to look beyond the man and I want us to think about what he did, what Jesus did. For it's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in that work that we see the real beauty of Jesus. First of all, I want you to notice with me his pain. Notice his pain. In verse number 4, the Bible says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet did we esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The pain of the Lord Jesus Christ as he came to earth. Notice with me that he suffered pain, first of all, at the hands of the soldiers. He suffered pain at the hand of the soldiers. Think with me about the horrible death that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered. He was forced to endure excruciating pain. There was the beating that he went through. In Luke chapter 22, in verses 63 and 64, it says, And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? In Psalm 129, verse 3, one of those prophecies from the Old Testament, it said, The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. Have you ever seen a field out in the, in, in the farmland that's just been plowed and getting ready to be planted when they've used those, those uh, discs that, that they do and, and it makes long furrows? You can see sometimes for, for miles of furrows in the, in, in the farmland. And what the Lord said is, they made his back look like that. With that whip that they beat him, made it look like a plow had gone across his back and made the long furrows across his back. And then I think of the scourging that he took. The word scourge means to whip, to lash as a public punishment. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 26 it says, Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. We oftentimes think about the pain and the suffering of the cross that he went through, and we forget that before he ever went to that cross, he was beaten, he was scourged. And then think about this. Matthew 27, verse 30 says, And they spit upon him, 
and took the reed and smote him on the head. The spitting that the Lord went through. You know, you can do just about anything to me, but don't spit on me, right? Don't spit on me. And, they, and they, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, they walked by and spit on him in their disdain for him. And then the mockery, Matthew 27, verse 27 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The mockery that our Savior went through as they made fun of him and mocked him. It wasn't just a fellow student or classmate in school that made fun of him. It was the whole crowd there. It was like a, a mob mentality as they mocked the Lord Jesus. And then they plucked the beard, they pulled the beard from his face. Some of you guys who have beards, you probably can think about what that would be like to have somebody grab a hold of a handful of hair and just rip it from your face. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 9, he says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And then they stripped him of his clothing. Matthew 27, 28 says, And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. Verse 35 says, And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vestures did they cast lots. One of the things they did with the, the Nazi uh, prisoners of war, they would strip them of their clothing and, in, and march them in shame and publicly to see all, that, all of that. And here's our Savior, the Lord, who is stripped of his clothing and nailed to a cross. In Matthew 27, verse 38, it says, Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. Here's Jesus placed on that center cross and a thief on both sides of him. John 20, 20 and verse 25, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. They were speaking to Thomas. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. You see, they nailed Jesus to that cross. They drove the spikes. We a lot of times think about a nail going through their hand. The nail probably didn't go through the center of his hand like you see in most pictures because the weight would have ripped through the flesh and, and pulled off. It probably went through the palm right back here in the back as it was driven through his hand and through his feet. And Thomas said, if I could just take my finger and stick it into the hole where that nail was in his hand, then I'll believe. If I could take my hand and put it into the hole in his side where the spear had driven into his side, then I'll believe. Jesus was nailed to that cross. And then the crucifixion itself the death on the cross was the most horrible of executions in the then known world. We get our word excruciating from it. The excruciating pain that the Lord Jesus Christ went through there. When a man was crucified on the cross, he went through tremendous strain that was placed on his wrists and on his arms and on his shoulders. Usually that re resulted in the dislocation of his shoulders and his elbow joints as he was hanging there especially as that cross was slammed down. It was lifted up and slammed into the hole in the ground. 
The arms being held up and outward held the rib cage in a fixed position. It made it extremely difficult to exhale and totally impossible to inhale and take in a full breath. That explains the brevity for the statements of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He didn't make long speeches on the cross. It was just short statements because of not having the breath as he hung there on the cross. As time passed, the muscles from the loss of blood and oxygen and from the fixed position of the body on that cross would undergo severe cramps and spasmodic contractions. Suffocation was the ultimate cause of the death on the cross. I talked about that a little bit in our Sunday school class this morning. You remember when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because he was already dead. When a person was hanging on the cross, they would hang there until sundown, and they would take them off the cross before sundown, but they wanted to make sure they were dead before they would take them off the cross, so they would break their legs. Why would they break their legs? You don't usually die just from breaking your leg. But when they hung on the cross, they had to pull with their hands and push up with their feet to gasp for breath. And when they broke their legs, they couldn't do that, and they couldn't get their breath, and they literally suffocated as they hung on the cross. Jesus went through excruciating pain, dying for you and for me on that cross. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ was a horrible, horrible event. And then I want you to notice that he suffered pain not only at the hands of the soldiers, but he suffered pain at the hand of the sovereign God. At the hand of the sovereign God. Look back at verse number 4. It says, surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, notice this, smitten of whom? Of God. He was smitten of God and afflicted. Look at verse number 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at verse number 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was suffering at the hand of the sovereign God. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. God put his son to grief. When thou shalt make, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. While Jesus was on that cross, a remarkable thing happened. Somehow, Jesus actually became the manifestation of your sin and my sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He, that's talking about God the Father, for He hath made Him, that's Jesus, God the Father made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. In the mind of God, Jesus Christ became your sin and my sin. And he was judged by the Father for our sin. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 and 46 says, Now from the sixth hour, that was about noon, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour, that's about three o'clock in the afternoon. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The crowd mistook his cries and thought that he was crying for Elijah, 
But he wasn't crying for Elijah. He was crying out to his father who had turned his back on his only beloved son. I can't explain it, but somehow God poured out his wrath on the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ suffered the undiluted and unfiltered wrath of Almighty God on the cross at Calvary. Jesus literally suffered the worst agony. He suffered your hell and my hell when he was on that cross. Thank God, because of that, we never have to suffer hell. Amen? Amen. He took it for us. But what is the greatest horror of hell anyway? Is it not separation from the presence of God? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction, talking about people who reject Christ, they'll be punished with everlasting punishment from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. To be separated from God for all of eternity. He suffered at the hands of the sovereign God. And then thirdly, he suffered pain at the hands of sinners. He suffered at the hands of sinners. If you look back at verse number 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, what? The iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. You can hear the mocking, mocking crowd that was there that day. They sounded like a mob. You've seen some of the pictures of the, uh, of the riots that we've had in different cities, and you see the mobs as they're pressing towards the area that they want to go. Here's the crowd pressing. Matthew 27 and verse 39 says, and, that, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. Mark 15, 29 says, And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads, and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. There's more to that story. If you look back at our text in chapter 53 and verse 6, again it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. In other words, God says, We, all of us, we're guilty. All we, have, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible tells us that Jesus suffered on that cross because of me and you. We weren't there when they nailed him to the cross. We weren't there when they spit in his face. We weren't there when they mocked him and beat him. But he endured all of that for you and for me because he loved us. We are responsible for his death on the cross. Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 says that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. We are the guilty. He is the innocent one. And Yet he went to the cross and took our sins upon himself and took our death so that we could live and have eternal life. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24 says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. He suffered pain at the hands of sinners. And then he suffered pain, and he suffered all that he did, and yet he was still God in the flesh. In all of that suffering, it's God on the cross. Man was crucifying God. They were nailing him to the cross. Isn't it astonishing that the one who has all power in heaven and earth, he said in Matthew 28, all power is given to me in heaven and earth, 
Isn't it interesting, the one who had all of that power would endure all of that for you and for me. And he would do it without even opening his mouth. Boy, I know what some of us would do. We'd be running our mouth, wouldn't we? Why are you doing this to me? What have I ever done to you? But not Jesus. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53, it says, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? He could have called the angels of heaven, twelve legions of angels, to, to destroy the world and to set him free. He could have simply spoken the word, and the iron and the nails that held him to the cross would have crawled back into the earth from which they came. If he so desired, he could have caused the molecules in the bodies of the executioners to, to, to disintegrate with just a single thought. He had all power. But his love for sinners was so great that he refused to condemn them. In fact, as he hung on the cross, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a Savior. Luke 23, verse 34 says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Jesus died for you and for me. And the least we can do is to give him our heart in salvation. If he went, all, went through all of that, if he went through all of that suffering and pain and agony, and he took my sin on him, he became my sin, the least I can do is give my life to him and live for him. If you reject Jesus, one day the one who was placed on that cross after he climbed up the hill of Golgotha and died in our place, will sit as our judge at the great white throne judgment. And in that day, there will be no mercy. In that day, there will be no salvation. In that day, there will be no grace. There will be no pardon. Only damnation and eternity in the lake of fire. A friend of mine, Tom Sexton, pastors a church in Fort Myers, Florida. Tom was a drunk before he got saved, and God marvelously reached down and touched him and saved him. He started working in the bus ministry in his church, and when I was in college, he worked for the, in the bus ministry, he and Clarence Sexton, both at Highland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Tom started working in the bus ministry, and he wanted his best friend to get saved. And so he began to pray for him. His best friend was also an alcoholic, and as a result, his best friend's wife had left him and left the five children for him to raise. He tried to get his best friend to come to church, but he wouldn't come, but he would let his kids come on the bus. They taught them on the bus, the Romans Road plan of salvation, and they taught them scripture verses like John 3.16. And one day, Tom got a phone call from his best friend. He told him that he had gotten saved. And Tom said, what happened? What changed your life? What caused you to get saved? And he said, Tom, he said there were beer cans all around on the floor in the house on the kitchen table. But he said, there on the kitchen table was John 3.16. And he said, my kids were learning it for the bus route. And he said, somehow God just got hold of my heart. And God saved me. Aren't you glad we have a God who can save us no matter how far we've gone away from the Lord? You see, Jesus died for you and for me. The least we can do is give him our life and our heart and live for him. 
the real beauty of Jesus lies and is seen not only in his pain, but it's also seen in his payment. It's seen in his payment. If you look back at verses 6 and 7, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before his, his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. In verse number 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The payment that Jesus made for you and for me. First of all, as we think about his payment, I want you to notice that he satisfied God's righteous demands for the payment for our sin. He satisfied the righteous demands. In dying on the cross, Jesus did what no other person could ever do. He satisfied the righteous demands for the payment for my sin and for your sin. And then, in him the sinner can find forgiveness for sins. We can find forgiveness for sin. Psalm 103 and verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 38 and verse 17, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. Praise God, our sins are past, they're gone, they're cast behind his back. 1 John 1, 9 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from what? All sin. The sinner can find forgiveness for all sin. And then Jesus has forgiven and forgotten my sins. He's forgiven and forgotten. Isaiah 43 and verse 25 says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions, for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. You know, we can, we can say we will forget things, but we have trouble making ourselves forget things. As we get older, we don't, we don't have any trouble with forgetting things. <laughs> but you let somebody hurt you. You let somebody do something. If somebody nailed you to a cross and put you through all Jesus went through, you think you'd ever forget it? No. But the Bible tells us that he can forget. He forgets our sins. In Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 20, it says, In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I, I serve, or whom I reserve. Hebrews 8 and verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. We used to have a trio in our church years ago, and they used to sing a song, and it, the title of the song was, What Sins Are You Talking About? What sins are you talking about? Our sins are gone. Amen? They're forgiven. They're blotted out. They're forgotten and forever gone. And then notice also Jesus paid the price, and the bill will never come due again. It'll never come due again. In John 1, verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which does what? Taketh away the sins of the world. Hebrews 9, verses 26 and 27, 28, 
for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as is appointed on a man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Oh, I'm so glad when he comes back we'll be without sin. Our sins will have been forgiven. When we stand before God, we'll stand just as righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our sins have been forgiven. His beauty, it lies not only in his pain, it lies not only in his payment, but it also is seen in his plan. It's seen in his plan. Look back at chapter 53 again in verse number 11. At the end of that verse, he says, By his knowledge shall my righteousness, shall my righteous servant justify, justify many, for he shall bear their iniquity. What is his plan? First of all, his plan is to justify many. Jesus came to save many. You see a little bit about his plan, and you see a little bit about his heart in this verse. He died on the cross so that many people could be justified. And then he also died, and part of his plan was so that we could be justified fully. Fully justified. We've already seen that Jesus has forgiven and forgotten our sin, but take that one step farther. In the mind of God, when we've trusted Him as our Lord and Savior, we have been fully justified. That means that to God, it's just as if we were totally sinless. Our sins are gone. We are just as if we'd never sinned, as if we weren't sinning now, and as if we would never sin again. We're justified. Look, if you will, with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, and listen to what the Apostle Paul said there. He said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And I love verse 11, it says, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Aren't you glad, but such were some of you? Thank God we're washed and cleansed and forgiven. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 says, And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained unto righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. I'm glad. We're the Gentiles. I'm glad that we have followed righteousness. We've followed the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've obtained the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that God doesn't know when we sin? Of course not. God knows everything, doesn't He? Does that mean that we can sin and get by with it? Of course not. When we sin, He still holds us accountable, and we have to either come to Him and confess it when He convicts us and make it right, or He has to chasten us <coughs> if we're not willing to repent. It does mean that we've been declared righteous in the sight of God. There's nothing that prohibits you and me from being perfect in the eyes of Almighty God when we stand before Him. 
Ephesians 4 and verse 30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. We got saved, our sins are forgiven, and we're sealed until the day of redemption. In other words, God gave us the Holy Spirit as His earnest to, to prove that we're saved and to guarantee that He'll deliver us safely into heaven. What a privilege it is. And then another part of His plan is to see sinners saved. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Revelation 22, 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. God's plan is that sinners will be saved, that folks will come and trust him. And then another part of his plan is to populate heaven with sinners that he's redeemed by his grace. God is saving us so that we get to go to heaven. We get to be a part of populating heaven, people who will be there for all of eternity that will praise our God and our Savior for saving us and taking away our sins. For all of eternity, we'll get to, to, to rejoice and we'll get to be a part of that plan that God has of populating heaven with sinners. Sinners that have been redeemed. His real beauty is seen not only in his plan, not only in his pain, not only in his payment, but it's also seen in his place. It's seen in his place. Look at verse number 12 of our text. Again, Isaiah 53 and verse 12. Therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus has been given, first of all, a place of honor. He's been given a place of honor. He today is highly exalted. The Bible tells us that after he died, he was placed in the grave, and then three days later, as we celebrated today, he rose from the dead, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he makes intercession for you and for me. But on that cross, he paid the price. He made atonement for our sins. And he offers his blood. He offered his blood on the mercy seat in heaven so that we could be forgiven. He died, was buried, rose again, presented his blood on the mercy seat, came back here to earth and was here for 40 days. And 40 days later, he ascended back to heaven. And now he's there sitting on the right hand of the Father. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12 says, But this man, after he, had suffered one, or after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat on the right hand of God, from henceforth experiencing till his enemies be made his footstool. For, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Again, Philippians 2 verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things of earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, sometime will bow the knee and will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 11, it says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So it's a place of honor. He's been lifted up and 
placed in that place of honor. He's been given a name. He's been highly exalted, a name above every name. It's also a place of returning. The Lord exalted the, God exalted the Lord Jesus, and He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, but one day He's going to come back again. Amen? We're looking for that. John 14, he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. And every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. He's returning. He's coming back for us. It could be tonight. And when he comes, we'll get to see the exalted one, and we'll have the privilege of seeing him as he really is. Amen? We'll get to see the real Jesus and everything about him. You know, Jesus still bears in His body the marks of the cross. Throughout eternity, I believe we'll see the nail-pierced hands and the spear-pierced side, and we'll see the punctures in His forehead from the crown of thorns, and for all of eternity, we'll be reminded of His great love for us. And much of the rejoicing in heaven for all of eternity, I believe, will be around the fact that in heaven we'll be reminded over and over and over of the great price and of the great love of our God. Someone said, how much does God love us? He stretched out His hands and died on the cross that we might have eternal life. It's a place of returning. And then it's also a place of reverence. It's a place of reverence. You see, in heaven, you read over and over in the book of Revelation where they bow before Him, they fall in their faces before Him, revering the Son of God. Behold the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. Have you bowed before Him? Have you acknowledged Him as your Lord and Savior? Have you given Him the exalted place that He deserves in your life? Have you let Him become your Lord and your Master and your Savior? You see, in heaven the angels are going to bow before Him. In heaven the saints are going to bow before Him. In earth the elements that are under his control, and, and even the devils here in this earth, the Bible says the devil fears and trembles at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's been, been given that name that's above every name. Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? In the Song of Solomon, there's a, there's a verse that's given there in chapter 5 and verse 16, and it just simply says this. It says, Yea, he is altogether lovely. He's altogether lovely. You take all the things we talked about that Jesus did for us and all that He is. When He was here on this earth, He had no beauty, no comeliness. But when we see Him, He's altogether lovely. And when we get to know Him, even here now on this earth, we sum it all up and we'd have to say He's altogether lovely. I mentioned Tom Sexton, his brother Clarence Sexton is a pastor and. Knoxville, Tennessee, some years ago, Clarence and Tom's mom passed away. And Mrs. Sexton's best friend was a lady by the name of Ruby. Ruby had gotten saved, given her life to the Lord, and she said to Mrs. Sexton one day, she said, I'd do anything, I'd give anything to have a family like you do. And at Mrs. Sexton's funeral, Ruby and many of her 
family members from, I think it was New, New Jersey, came. Was Clarence had pastored there at one time. But many of Ruby's family members came there to the funeral. And, and there was much grieving. They were close. She was, Ruby was close to her. And, and they said even some of the people came into the church screaming because they were in such grief and such sorrow. But someone outside started their car while it was in gear. And you guys who have driven a stick shift, you know what happens when you turn the key and your foot's not on the brake. And the car lunged into a group of people outside the, the, before they went in for the funeral. And four people were injured. And Mrs. Sexton's best friend, Ruby, was killed. She had just said to somebody else, I don't know how I can live without Mrs. Sexton. And she died in that accident. The preacher preached the funeral and told how Ruby, a number of years before, had come to know Christ as her Savior. And today, as they were having the funeral for Brother Sexton's mother, Ruby was joining her in heaven because of her faith in Jesus Christ. And at that funeral, all 30 of those friends of Ruby's that had come to the funeral trusted Christ as their Savior and got saved. Let me ask you a question. If it was your funeral, can the preacher stand and tell about how when you trusted Christ and how you got saved and how you gave your life to the Lord and lived for the Lord? Would your testimony cause your friends to want to have what you had and want to know your Savior and your Lord? Have you trusted Him? Are you telling others about Him? Are you living for Him? Have you given Him that place of honor and reverence that He deserves? Is the name of Jesus truly in your heart and mind? I'm not talking about the world around us, but in your heart and mind. Is His name the name that's above every name? Is His name the name at which you bow and confess Him as your Lord and Savior? Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, today we've spent some time, this morning talking about the resurrection, tonight talking about some things that preceded that resurrection. We have a wonderful, wonderful Savior. And when we truly come to know you and see you for who you are, we see the beauty in what Jesus did for us. We say with the Song of Solomon, we say He is altogether lovely. Lord, may we have a fresh appreciation for what You've done for us. And if there's one person here that's never trusted You as Lord and Savior, would You help them to open their heart to You and invite You into their heart and life and be saved tonight? And would you help every single one of us to see how great our Savior is and how much He loved us and how much He did for us. May we renew our love and our dedication and our commitment to live for you. How could we do any less than to give our life to you and live for you? Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.